Hi, I'm Douglas Haynes, your Monday host of A Public Affair. We love creating this public space for in-depth conversations about education, ecology, food, and so much more. To keep these conversations going, we need your support. Go to wortfm.org slash donate. Thank you. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. Welcome to A Public Affair. I'm your Monday host, Douglas Haynes. Well, it happened to me just this morning while listening to the news. In minutes, my mood dove toward despair. When musician and artist David Byrne had this same experience too many times, he began saving articles that gave him hope. Articles about initiatives that were proven success stories. In 2019, he built on this by launching a nonprofit online magazine called Reasons to be Cheerful, which bills itself as Tonic for Tumultuous Times. Here he is talking about this effort. Hello. Hi. Hi, my name's David Byrne. I know that things can seem pretty hopeless these days. I often feel that way too. So, a little while back, I started looking for reasons to be cheerful. And believe it or not, I found some. I found a lot, actually. And I had an idea. What if we started a project and brought some of those reasons to be cheerful into sharper focus? We looked at things that are working, and our team told us stories to help us understand those things better. Things that might be copied, replicated, scaled up, spread around. That's what this project is about. We're documenting stories of solutions, not just good ideas, but real positive change that's being made by people and communities all over the world. This is a crazy time, and you might be thinking, that focusing on good stuff is just a distraction. But I disagree. I think it's crucial to keep us from giving up. Yes, it's a tonic, but it's also energizing. It gets us engaged and brings us together. It might even be a more accurate picture of the world than what we're usually shown. These aren't stories about how we wish things were. These are stories about how they are right now. I feel better already. That's the musician David Byrne talking about the online magazine Reasons to be Cheerful that he launched in 2019, what he calls a tonic for tumultuous times. Here today to unfold the story of this magazine with me um, to talk about solutions journalism and Reasons to be Cheerful in 2024 is the executive editor of Reasons to be Cheerful, Will Doig. Will is a journalist and author of the book High Speed Empire, Chinese Expansion and the Future of Southeast Asia. Welcome to A Public Affair, Will. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you with us. And I want to welcome listeners as well. We'd love for you to join our conversation today. If you have a question for Will about reasons to be cheerful or solutions journalism or want to share a reason to be cheerful in this new year, please do give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. We'd love to have your insight and questions about reasons to be cheerful, but also about uh, what you'd like to see the media covering in terms of solutions journalism. 
To start today, Will, I'd love to have you just tell us a little bit more about the mission of Reasons to be Cheerful and what drew you to it in particular after a um, long and varied uh, career in journalism. Sure. Um, Yeah, our mission is pretty simple, which is to report on what's working instead of what isn't. Um, Usually when you watch the news, you hear a lot about the problems in the world, but you often don't hear a lot about what you could do about those problems or some of the constructive solutions that are bubbling up out there. And so we feel that it's kind of our purpose to bring those solutions to the fore so that we can see that there are actually um, positive changes occurring out there in the world. I think you know, a lot of the time we sometimes will um, get, you know, accused of sort of rosying up the picture of what's going on out there. But we actually see it as just the opposite, which is that, you know, by only focusing on the negative, you might be getting information, but you're not really getting a clear view of what's going on in the world. And so by bringing, you know, solutions and positive change into the picture, what we're helping people do, hopefully, is see a more accurate picture of the world and a clearer view of what's really going on out there. So that's our mission in a nutshell. Um, I think that we're probably different things to different people. We certainly have a lot of readers who come to us specifically because they literally want to fear, feel cheerful. And that is what we're trying to provide to them with our stories. Um, but we also hope that people will take these stories and read about them and get inspired to bring these solutions maybe to their own communities. You know, there are things that we report on in all parts of the world that could potentially work in your own community. And so if those solutions get spread around and scaled up, then um, then that's a big part of our mission too. We'll talk more in depth about some of the stories that you've been covering lately that illustrate just what you've been talking about. But a couple of things jump out at to, to me as starting points um, that we could cover sort of more succinctly, which were covered in your uh, your recent piece to mark the new year, um, the year in cheer, 2023. Um, a couple that jumped out at me there were things like uh, New Jersey bang- banning single-use plastic bags. After they did that, 37% fewer ended up on beaches. Um, a new child care program rolling out in Canada that costs $10 a day. Uh, sea otters that were uh, nearly extinct uh, back in 1977 when they were um, first protected, now having a population of about 100,000. There's a whole list there on your piece um, to celebrate the the turning of the year, reasons to be cheerful in 2023, that kind of embody um, what you all are doing there in a nutshell, but also hold larger stories behind them, right? Which seems to be kind of the idea behind that reasons to be cheerful piece. Tell us a little bit more about uh, where you're coming from in marking that that new year and and how you see that as indicative of what you're trying to do there overall yeah the year in cheer it's something we do every year we release it right at the end of the year Um, it's one of our readers favorite features it's one of our favorite features basically we spend weeks kind of combing through all the stories that we ran over the course of the year and trying to find as many of the you know kind of data points that we could that show what happened that year um, in all the stories that we published. I think this year we came up with 177, which is, uh, I think we were, it's like six fewer than last year. So maybe it was a slightly less cheerful year in 2023. (laughs) I don't know how that happened. Um, But anyway, yes. So we came up with all these data points and statistics and facts from the course of the year, put them all into one big list. It's a little bit supposed to be, it's like part inspiration, but also part a little bit goofy to the idea of reading 177 facts, but they're all true. Um, and they link through to each individual story. So if you want to take a look at, the, at that piece, then you can see all the stories that those facts came from. But I think overall, it's sort of, even though it's supposed to be a little bit funny, it is 
it does exemplify what we're trying to do, right? Which is show that, yes, when you look back on this year, what you probably remember from the news is all of the bad stuff. But in fact, it's a reminder that a lot of really good stuff happened and whether it just wasn't reported on or whether you forgot about it because it's harder to remember the, the good stuff, um, that it really is out there. And so, um, yeah, we hope that it, you know, that people take it that way. And we'll circle back to a more personal version of that you did um, towards the end of the year at the end of the show today, where you uh, kind of went out on the streets of New York and asked folks, what, what's something good that happened to you this year? So we'll, we'll circle back there later, later but I want to stick kind of with your overall mission first and have you tell us um, what the overall response to the site has been like since it launched in 2019 and what kind of feedback are you getting from your audience? So when we launched in August of 2019, I think that all of us thought this maybe will last for about a year. I mean, how much good news could there really be? Like, we'll go out and we'll see what we can find. And then, you know, eventually we'll close up shop. Um, and what happened was just the opposite. It was actually the more you look, the more you realize there's just an almost unlimited amount of good things happening out there that can be reported on. So we started it up in August 2019. Um, it was an editor named Christine McLaren and myself, along with David Byrne. Um, and we started very small. Uh, we only, it was just the three of us, really. Uh, we had a, a part-time audience engagement person as well. And we posted just a couple stories a week. That's pretty much what we, what we you know, started out with. And as we went, we kept getting more and more readers. I think at first we thought, oh, this is going to be mostly fans of David's music. And a lot of them are, but we were actually really encouraged to find out that that wasn't always the case. A lot of our readers are people who just read us because they like the site or because, you know, I mean, some of them have never even heard of David. They just really like this kind of news, which indicated to us that there was a surprising sort of thirst for this out there and that nobody was really doing it. Um, we can talk in a minute about the spread of solutions journalism, but five years ago, this was really kind of like a new idea that was only done by a few, a few places. And so we just kept growing. We kept getting more and more readers. Um, we have a newsletter that has 130,000 subscribers now. So, which, you know, for a website our size is, is pretty big. I think it really shows that this is something that people have latched onto um, and, and really appreciate in so many different ways. So yeah, the growth has been really encouraging. And, and you mentioned, uh, David there and people perhaps being drawn to him, uh, to the site, uh, because of this, um, what was your reaction to him when he approached you just on a personal level here for a moment about doing this project? I don't know if you had a prior relationship, but did you uh, have a sense of, you know, his vision right away and his seriousness about this and where it could go? Uh, what was what was that like kind of getting this off the ground with him? That's interesting. Yeah, I don't think I've ever been asked that before. I think at first, like a lot of people, maybe when they come to the website, I think I thought he was being slightly ironic with this idea of a website called Reasons to be Cheerful, because 2019, like things, you know, a lot of people felt like things were sort of dark. <laughs> um, and I thought, what is this? Like, are we really going to do a, a, just news stories about cheerful things? Pretty quickly, um, as he began to define it for for us, um, it made a lot of sense. He He wanted to do stories that weren't just like happy news. He wanted stories that were about real, actual things that were happening in the world. Not just good ideas, but actual, like currently implemented solutions that were showing evidence of success through, you know, data or, or what have you. Um, and that really snapped 
a lot of things into focus for me. I had done some solutions journalism, but this was the first time I was going to be working exclusively on that. And I thought, yeah, that that actually sounds like a really important counterbalance to the rest of what's going on in the media out there. So we started it up and yeah, it seems to have really caught on not only with our readers, but I think across the media ecosystem, we're starting to see a lot more of this now. Um, there's a lot of mainstream publications that now have a solutions journalism column or, or a daily feature or something like that. Our own stories are getting picked up by a lot of uh, mainstream media outlets. Um, maybe it's because, you know, it's just people are getting used to the idea that news doesn't have to be bad news. Maybe it's younger people who want to actually do something about the world. I don't know. Um, but it really seems to be spreading. And so I guess we feel fortunate that we were sort of early to the game and have been part of, you know, maybe helping to spread solutions journalism and make it more of a, of a mainstream idea. You're listening to A Public Affair on WRT 89.9 FM Madison. My name is Douglas Haynes, and I'm talking today with journalist Will Doig, executive editor of the online magazine Reasons to be Cheerful. If you have a question for Will about Reasons to be Cheerful or Solutions Journalism or want to share your own reason to be cheerful in this new year, please do give us a call at 608 256 2001 extension 9 we'd love to have you join the conversation so let's dive in now will to talk a little bit more about some recent stories that you feel like really embody the work and what you're trying to do there which you've described for us so far um you mentioned that uh a reasons to be cheerful story is not just happy news um it can be complicated but it's something that has evidence that uh there's something out there working to make the world better and you shared with me a few recent stories that are excellent examples of of what you describe um let's start with one of these it's called uh, take it down and they'll return the stunning revival of the penobscot river by kea kraus um this story is part of your waterline series of stories at the nexus of water climate and food um, so what's the problem in this story? What's the solution and how was it implemented? Those are some of the key elements that you've described for solutions journalism stories, right? Yeah. Um, so the Penobscot river is a major river system up in Northern New England. Um, it has for many decades been, um, kind of just damned all, all the way along its length, um, which as many people know, is not great for aquatic life because when you dam a river, then fish can't spawn, aquatic life can't move. I think the author of the story described it as when you dam a river, you kind of just like lock it into place and everything becomes very still as opposed to the really kind of like thriving and dynamic natural movement of a river. So um, this was creating a lot of problems, not just for the river, but also for the ecology around the river because a lot of the, you know, even the land-based animals would feed on the fish, things like that. So a couple of decades ago, um, some various stakeholders got together and they decided they were going to remove the dams from the river. And so they raised money. They actually bought the dams themselves and then they deconstructed them. It was a joint effort between a lot of different um, a lot of different people. The indigenous Penobscot people of the area were really key in it um, and continue to be. And the river has rebounded really, really quickly. One of the things that that project showed is that when you undam a river, it doesn't, like a lot of restoration projects, it does not take decades to come back. It comes back in like months. You can see spectacular changes. And so that's been a project that has now been sort of copied by other river, um, you know, in other river systems around the country and the world. And undamming projects are 
sort of being implemented all over the place. So I think that's a really good example of a story where you could see definitive results, both with your own eyes and also in the data. And it made it a perfect story for us. It was a very, very popular story for us too. I think our readers love stories about the environment, um, you know, being restored or hopeful stories about climate and environment. And there's tons of them out there. Um, so that was a really, um, yeah, I thought that was a really good story. And it has a human and an ecological dimension, as you were talking about. And the vitality of the two are really clearly linked to the river's health in the story and the way that the story is told. Um, it's, like you said, a feel-good story, but not not just a sort of an everything's fine now kind of story either, right? It's a, It really made it clear that there's an ongoing process of restoration here. And that's kind of the vibe I get from a lot of uh, reasons to be cheerful stories, actually, is that they bring you into something in motion and help you kind of watch it unfold, some kind of progress or, or, or forward positive change. Um, is that something you're kind of going for? Yeah, I hope that our stories kind of take readers into a world. Usually it's about a place that they don't live themselves. And so you can really bring them into this world where there are real people and real communities and real things happening. Um, and when that happens, I think that really makes it seem like, oh, these are possible solutions. These are things, not just things that happened or that that the government did, but like this is something that like people came together to do. Um, we did another story recently about uh, an effort to increase densification in Portland, Oregon. So um, Oregon, like a lot of cities for the latter half of the 20th century, really tried to, they put in place policies to restrict densification. Um, in other words, like no hot, you know, no apartment buildings or like no duplexes, things that encouraged single family houses that are just on their own lots, which is not great for a city in a lot of ways because it encourages sprawl and it excludes a lot of people who might not be able to afford a single family home. Um, there are many reasons that those got put into place over the years. Some of them were, you know, because of environmental um, concerns. Some of them were because they were racially motivated and they people trying to keep other people out of their neighborhoods. Um, and Portland had one of the strictest, which actually kind of surprised me because I think of Portland, Oregon as kind of a progressive place. But since the 1950s, it had been essentially illegal to build anything that wasn't just a single family home on its own lot, which is wild for a city when you think about it. Um, a few years ago, the city, much like with the Penobscot River, a bunch of people kind of unrelated to each other got together in the city and they decided this is not good for our city. And so what they did is they started to go really like door to door and get people on board with this idea of allowing denser neighborhoods in Portland. Um, you know, in a lot of cities, when they try to densify, there's a lot of backlash because people are worried about, say, the value of their homes or whatever. People like sometimes don't like density. But in Portland, they did it in a way by engaging people directly that really made it a smooth process and the one that most people got on board with. And so that's why we called the story the Portland art of feel good densification, because they really did it in a way that didn't create animosity, which was unique. And now Portland has a new system where not only um, are you allowed to build apartment buildings, but you are not allowed to build single family homes in most instances. Now you have to have a denser city and uh, in that sense, a more affordable city and a more inclusive city. And so that was really a perfect story for us too. 
Yeah, that um, issue that you describe has been a very contentious issue here in Madison, like so many places facing a housing crisis um, and all over Wisconsin here for that matter. And one of the things that struck me about that story about Portland is how it was such an engaging story about such a complex and policy dense issue. Um, and the tone of most of the stories that I see about this issue, whether they're national or local here is, um, sort of the, it makes it feel almost like an insurmountable problem, the housing crisis. Um, and that, uh, if you can bear, get through the policy in understanding it and reading it, maybe you could come up with a good solution, but it's certainly not, uh, easy for communities to mobilize on this issue. And the story, what you just described is exactly the opposite of that. Yeah, that's great to hear because we really aim to um, instill that sense with our stories that these are not impossible solutions. And I completely agree with you. I think that when you think about something like housing or zoning, you think, that's not my world. How am I going to do something about that? But what that forgets is that cities are made up of people and the people who govern cities are responsive to those people, because if that's what people want, then they will get it. They'll, they'll get um, support because politicians need votes. You can put together groups of coalitions of people who believe in something and make something happen. It doesn't mean um, just because, you know, there might be um, a, a topic as sort of arcane as zoning or housing that you can't do something about it. In most cases, you really can. And do you get feedback from readers or policymakers out there, for that matter, at Reasons to be Cheerful that, hey, I read this story about housing or about undamming a river, and that has led to such and such change in my community or people organizing around this issue in my community? Yeah, we do sometimes. It's really, those are kind of our favorite emails to get. Um, we got one a little while back. We ran a story. This was actually in Europe. Um, I believe it was in... France that in public schools, they have like little white mailboxes and students can put some like a note in those mailboxes if they are, for instance, being bullied or having some other kind of like problem at school, but that they can't bring themselves to actually go to an adult face to face and say, I'm having this problem. They can do it via the mailbox shown to be really effective. And we got an email from somebody in Germany who said, I read your story about the mailbox system in, Fr in French schools, and I'm working now to apply, you know, get that implemented here in my community in Germany. So that's kind of incredible because those aren't even the same country. And so yeah. you can see how one solution really could go in so many different directions if people just become aware of it. Um, and that one, you know, it's kind of a small, smaller scale thing where you could picture just doing it at, for instance, your kid's school. But there's bigger solutions that can get spread around that way, too. So that's the ultimate goal. I mean, it doesn't happen every day, but when that does happen, it's, it's, um, yeah, it's really encouraging. And you mentioned Will earlier that, um, climate stories in particular, uh, seem to resonate with your readers and in the, the mainstream media, I guess we'll say even beyond the mainstream media, so much of climate reporting is focused on policy and science and things like the cop meetings that happened last month. Um, but not very much of it is focused on what's happening at the community level. Um, and that's clearly something uh, the work you're trying to do at Reasons to be Cheerful is trying to address. Tell us a little bit more about how you approach climate reporting there at Reasons to be Cheerful. Yeah, climate reporting, it, I, it can be tough because it can seem, as you said, like the most 
insurmountable problem for a single person to do anything about. I mean, there's things that you could do, you know, as an individual to kind of shoulder showers approach, but that doesn't feel as, you know, impactful as doing something, you know, maybe a little bit bigger. Um, but we have found that there are a lot of groups out there that we report on that can help an individual do something that's more impactful. And those are what we often end up reporting on. So for instance, we ran a story a while back on um, a group in Montreal, I think, who helps residents, it's a term called rewilding, where they, they help them rewild their lawns, because lawns just aren't very good for the environment. They're sort of like ecologically inert spaces. Um, but some people don't want to be part of that. They want to do something with their yard that would actually like attract native insects and you know help and help the local biodiversity. But how many of us really know what to do? Like if you tried to do that, you'd say, well, what do I do? Just start letting my lawn grow out of control? But no, there's an actual way that you can go about it. You just need somebody to help you do it. And so we reported on this initiative in Montreal where they were helping people do that and that had been having um, a really good impact. Um, so things like that, that, those are the types of stories that really resonate with our readers. One of our our favorite topics that we found has been um, things to do with like reusing and repairing stuff that you already own. So not recycling, recycle, everybody talks about recycling, but you know, this idea that things that you own should be repairable by the average person. And so if you're coffee maker, you know, starts to go on the fritz, you don't need to throw it away and buy a whole new coffee maker, there should be resources out there to help you repair it, and you should be able to do it, it should be made in a way that you can do it easily. Um, a lot of devices these days are almost intentionally built so that you can't repair them, the sort of black box model, because they want you to buy a new one. Um, part of that story talked about how in the EU, they're actually making that illegal so that you can't build things that nobody can repair anymore. It all has to be repairable. And in certain cities, or actually, I would say certain countries, they're starting to offer subsidies where if you do repair something, then the government will chip in and pay for part of the cost of the repair. So. Again, that's like a small thing that, but when you add up a lot of people starting to do that, then it becomes a big thing. And so that's, um, that's another kind of environment story that our readers really seem to latch onto. And that's a good example of the power of example, right? Which is a lot of what, uh, some of your stories are really operating with this, giving us a good example that provides inspiration for something to, to spread or, or happen elsewhere. Um, you talking about reusing and repairing just now reminded me of a different story about Berlin actually having some kind of ordinance about uh, reusing uh, consumer objects. Yeah, Berlin is is a city that is um, kind of on a quest to become, you know, as close to zero waste as the city can get. And they've put in all all sorts of measures to help people not waste things. One of my favorite stories we did out of Berlin was about how secondhand in Berlin now is like really trendy, like it's a craze. And it's, you know, I live in New York and there's vintage shops here, but it's like the kind of boutique vintage, like it's kind of just cool, the cool stuff. But in Berlin, it's like everybody, you can buy secondhand almost anything and people are really doing that. Um, Part of what's cool about it is that it's not just, you know, a small group of committed environmentalists. It's become like a movement and it's and people see their friends doing it and they don't they want to be seen doing it. And that's fine. Like if that's the way that it's going to catch on, then I think that's great. Now, because of this, they have whole department stores that are nothing but secondhand goods where you can go and it looks like you're walking into Macy's, but it's all used stuff and they um, get a lot of customers and people shop there like they would at any other store. And 
And that's really nice. I think that it's it's very cool when cities kind of embark on these movements um, and get everybody on board and make it something that people want to do, not just something that people have to do. And a great example, again, of uh, how an idea can spark the normalization of a practice for in this case, um, and maybe spark that then elsewhere as well as it as it becomes not just something you have to go seek out, but part of the culture itself, it sounds like in Berlin. Yeah. Yeah. One of our earliest stories was actually written by David, and um, he wrote about how I think it was in, I want to say Christchurch, New Zealand. This was five years ago, so I might be getting that wrong. Um, they implemented this, this policy where if you, what was it? I think that if you like were recycling really well, then you would get like a gold star on your recycling bin that sat out in your driveway. And it became something where people really wanted their neighbors to see that they had gotten a gold star. And so people started slapping these, you know, they'd get a gold star from the government for recycling well, and then they put them on their recycling bins. And the whole story was kind of about how, you know, I wouldn't call it peer pressure. I, I think it has a more positive connotation mm -hmm. than that. I mean, it was sort of how like you want to show that you're doing right by your community and you're, you know, trying to do the right thing. And the more that people can see that others are doing that, then the more they'll do it themselves. I think in the same story, David cited some other examples about um, another place where one city decided to make public all the data from residents' water meters. So you could see not only how much water you're using, but how much water everybody else who lives around you is using. And you might think, I'm using a little too much water compared to the other people I know. And so then you cut down on your own water use. Um, and that's its own form of, you know, like trying to do right by your community, um, which I think personally is really nice. This might be the kind of thing that um, might be, I don't know, somewhat controversial in some places, but to me, I think that the more transparent that we can be about what we're doing, the better. It's not forcing people to do anything. People can make their own choices. It's just making it transparent how you're living, um, so that, you know, we can all feel like we're living as a responsible community together. Mm -hmm. And again, what you're doing by sharing these stories of that happening in different places is creating a conversation about ways for that to happen um, that people might not otherwise come across, which is really inspiring and um, offers people the opportunity to to think about uh, solving problems, ecological problems, social problems, et cetera. We'll get into some more of those in a little bit uh, in really inventive ways. So you're listening to A Public Affair here on WRT 89.9 FM. I'm Douglas Haynes, and I'm talking today with Will Doig, executive editor of the online magazine Reasons to be Cheerful. If you have a question for Will about Reasons to be Cheerful or Solutions Journalism or want to share a reason to be cheerful in this new year, we'd love to hear it. Give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. So, Will, let's spend a little bit uh, more time talking about this movement of solutions journalism that uh, you identify as being part of there at Reasons to be Cheerful. Um and the idea of what makes something news or not news. Um, what what defines solution journalism? Let's start there. What makes it just different than positive or good news? Um, I think the different places who practice it have slightly different definitions. I think that for us, um, the most important thing is that it's something that's actually happening and working and having an impact and that you can show that impact. Um, to me, that is the thing that really separates it from a lot of other 
websites that do sort of kind of good news or feel good news, um, which is nothing wrong with that. But, you know, it's I, we have from the very beginning tried to maintain a strict bright line test for our stories and say, if this is going to be included in our mix, then it really has to show evidence um, of of being an actual working solution. Um, and that's a definition that I think is getting more widely adopted as more and more mainstream outlets start to do this type of reporting. Um, the New York Times now has a, a section called Headway that is pretty much all solutions journalism. Um, the Washington Post has a section called Climate Solutions that's really just all like solutions in regards to the climate. And so once you see, you know, like places like that starting to do it, they do have very strict standards. And so it's actually been really nice to see the, you know, the standards around solutions journalism get more um, kind of, you know, protective of the genre rather than, you know, seeing it sort of kind of get loose and different things get called solutions journalism when really it might just be something kind of happy. Um, we are trying to start doing things other than our typical um, story output. One of the things that we started doing last year is live events, and we're going to do even more of those in the coming year. And I think that that is one place where we can really bring a more dynamic um, kind of model to the storytelling. So same standards. We try to keep it very um, focused on working solutions. But once we go into real cities and real communities and start to talk to people on stage about issues that affect those communities, then um, that's where you can kind of get into like more storytelling or like a spread, you know, spread out a little bit into like, um, you know, hearing about real people's lives. And so that's one thing that that we're working on this year. Here. As um, solutions journalism spreads sort of into more um, dominant media outlets like the New York Times and the Washington Post that you mentioned, do you see it shaping the negativity bias of journalism? In other words, that news is something wrong or a problem or something bad happened, something quote unquote eventful rather than a process or an idea. Um, do you see that idea shifting a little bit about what news is, or do you feel like it's just becoming solutions journalism, sort of a, a genre separate from the rest of the news? Uh, yeah, I think, I might have a slightly cynical view on, you know, for-profit news, which is that it will not do something if people don't want to read it. So I think that as long as people are responding to solutions journalism in mainstream news, I think that you'll continue to see more of it. And I think that's probably why you're continuing to see more of it is that people are starting to tune out a little bit when it comes to, um, you know, they call it news paralysis, basically people saying, I don't want to listen to the news because it's bumming me out. Mm -hmm. There's a big um, annual Reuters study that comes out every year from the Reuters Institute. And this past year, when they put the study out, it was the first time they had ever included a section specifically on solutions journalism. And in that study, they cited the reasons that people have stopped paying attention to news. And the number one reason was that it has a negative effect on my mood is what people said. And so when you get into those types of situations, I think that that means that more mainstream places will start to do solutions journalism because not because it's the right thing to do, but because people are saying this is what I want more of. And so, yeah, I do actually have a lot of faith that this is going to continue as a trend. And, um, you know, who knows? I mean, news has meant different things over the years. It's there was a time not that long ago when 
it was completely accepted that newspapers would incorporate their own bias into every news article they ran. Newspapers each had their own point of view and they, com they were completely unashamed of it. And that was the news and that was fine with everybody. And then we changed to a, you know, a, a phase that we're in now where you're supposed to be more objective, which I certainly am in favor of, but it's just to say that it doesn't mean that the idea of what news is can't evolve. And I think that it will continue to evolve. And if it involves in this direction, then personally, I think that that would be a good thing. You were just talking a little bit about polls, about the public's attitude towards news. And um, it's no secret that there's a growing lack of trust in journalism as well. And two of your colleagues, Michaela Haas and Peter Young, have written about this recently for Reasons to be Cheerful. And they sit uh, talking about how solutions journalism can be a solution for the public's growing lack of trust in journalism. Tell us about how um, you understand that kind of approach to solutions journalism can change how the public trusts the media. Um. Well, I think that maybe the public has a sense that when they are being sort of um, fear mongered, that that's not in their best interest. Maybe that is what Michaela and Peter are talking about, because I think we can all kind of like you kind of have a sense that when you look at the news and you see headlines that almost seem designed to freak you out or scare you or just or make you keep reading because you're going to find out what happens at the end of this horrible story. Um, you kind of get the sense that maybe this is not really meant to inform or in my best interest or here to, um, you know, kind of like make me a more well-rounded person. I think that you kind of, you get the idea that, no, this, this might not be the most productive way to do the news. And so maybe by doing news in a way that gives people something that they can grab onto and say, you know, this is actually something that could be constructive. This is something that could like be used to improve my life and the lives of others around me. Then you I would think that maybe you inherently trust that a little bit more just because it seems like this is acting in my interest. Um, it's not just trying to get clicks. I mean, one of the things we get a lot of questions about, how do you get people to read good news? There's this like idea that nobody's going to read it. And that has not been the case at all. And in fact, I, we've been kind of shocked at how fast um, we've gained readers over the years. And every year our readership grows a lot and people just keep discovering what we're doing and seeming to want to hear more about it. So um, I don't know. I think that it just seems like something that it's been waiting to happen. Like, uh, you know, David Byrne has been ahead of the game on a lot of things. And I think that maybe with this, he was just had a little bit of foresight to see what people would be interested in hearing about. And, um, and I think that that's really proven to be true. You mentioned a little bit ago, the live events that you're planning um, for this year and, um, sounds like going around to different places around the country and doing those. Um, yep. Talk a little bit more um, for us about different forms of public engagement with journalism. Your pieces are all always really deeply reported, um, but how you translate that to maybe different forms, whether it's live events or different forms of media as well. How do you see your work evolving? Yeah, so the live events really are meant to bring this into people's communities where these solutions are happening so that we can put real people on stage. They are people who have either been featured in a Reasons to be Cheerful story okay. from that area, or they're people who are connected to a particular issue that we've reported on. And they share the stage with David 
and they discuss these issues in front of um, in front of an audience. And then there's usually a Q&A section. And it's been really great because, you know, it brings not only does it bring the story to life, but it really, as I was saying, allows you to sort of explore it in a different way. You can kind of get into, you know, personal stories or like the personal impacts of these types of issues in a way that may might not translate on the page so much. Um, so that's been really great. And I think that as far as, you know, like the new modes of storytelling, I think that that's one of them. Um, but I also think that just like getting um, getting more out there into like real life stuff is something that we would like to do. We often get people who are almost, I would say, a little bit complaining that we don't offer kind of like a direct path from reading our story to like, how can I do something about this? And that's something that we've been very careful about since day one is to not drift into advocacy because advocacy and journalism are two very different things. And we want to be clear that when we report on these things, we're not endorsing them. We're just reporting on it the way that you would report on any other news item, which is this is something that's happening. Um, we do have a very small section at the end of our stories called Dig Deeper that provides some links um, sometimes to like different resources. But we don't encourage people to get involved with things. We don't suggest, oh, you should do something like this where you live. You are meant to read the story, be inspired if, you, if you'd like to be, take it as, as it is, and then you know, take it further if you would like to. Um, but once you get into advocacy, it, it's tempting because there's so much demand for it. But once you get into that area, then you're not really doing news anymore. And so it's just something that we're very careful about. And how about first person um, or more different kinds of multimedia narratives? Is that something that you're exploring as well? We do a little bit of that. Once in a while, we'll run a first person essay. Um, Michaela, who you mentioned before, she's one of our contributing editors, and she's written a lot of great first person essays for us. She lives in Southern California, but she's originally from a small Bavarian village in Germany. And so she has this great... Um, kind of like perspective on the world for, you know, from two different worlds. And she's written a lot about say, you know, um, like gun violence and gun, gun, gun violence solutions for us, um, abortion, kind of like tough topics, which is something that we try not to shy away from controversial topics, just because we're doing something called reasons to be cheerful. We don't feel that we should be, um, you know, just staying in safe territory. Um, as long as there's solutions out there, then we try to we try to follow them there. And Michaela has written great first person pieces about those things, kind of drawing from her experience as, um, a, you know, somebody who's from a small village in Germany, having ended up in California and bringing both perspectives to it. So that's been really great. We had early on in the pandemic, it was like the first few weeks that was kind of a scary time for us because we launched in August, 2019. And then in March, 2020, the pandemic started and we thought, you know, we're staring down the barrel of a global health apocalypse with a website called reasons to be cheerful. Like, what are we going to do? But just like a lot of things, it quickly emerged that there were so many solutions out there related to the pandemic that were happening. It actually provided a wealth of stories. But one other thing it provided was fodder for, um, a first person essay that David Byrne wrote for us early, early on. Um, the title was the world is changing. So can we, and it was, it was like a perfect crystallization of the moment, I think, because he really spoke to the fear that was out there, but then also the potential for us to, you know, not solve this problem, but to get through it with, you know, 
um, by cooperating and by be, and with a sense that we can get through this together. And so it was a little bit different for us because it wasn't like a straight up solution story, but it had the sensibility that this can be that this can be solved and fixed and got through in a certain way. And um, so once in a while, we'll do those sorts of stories. They're very popular with our readers. I, I kind of wish we did more of them, to be honest. It's maybe not completely in our DNA, um, but maybe we will. That's Will Doig, executive editor of the online magazine Reasons to be Cheerful. If you have a question for Will about Reasons to be Cheerful or Solutions Journalism or want to share a reason to be cheerful in this new year, please give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. There's still time to join the conversation today. Will, um, I want to follow up about this issue of advocacy because I think um, it's something that people think about a lot. And when I talk to journalists, they, they mention a lot that distinction between news and advocacy. And you're in a really interesting position there at Reasons to be Cheerful because you're clearly advocating for solutions to problems, right? But it sounds like trying to make a distinction between advocating for particular solutions versus addressing problems would that be fair to say yeah it's tricky so we're definitely <laughs> i feel comfortable saying that we're advocating for the idea of solutions um but what we try not to do is advocate for any particular solution we just report on solutions that are happening um but by you know by not advocating for them what i mean is being really careful to not suggest that there's a right way to do things um there are many things that are out there that are being done and showing evidence of success but maybe there's other ways of doing them too. You know, we're not saying this is the way. The one thing that we do sometimes run into that is tricky is um, remaining nonpartisan. It's really important to us to not report on solutions as a partisan endeavor. Um, so, you know, sometimes a solution to something might not be something that you really agree with, or it might kind of adhere to an ideology that doesn't seem like something that you would embrace. But we try to ignore that as best we can and just stick to you know what is actually working. So we ran a series um, a little while back called Red State Green Energy. And this was a story or sorry, a series about um, how you know a lot of the most exciting renewable energy efforts that are out there are happening in really politically conservative states, um, Texas, Iowa, Wyoming. Um, these are all places where, you know, you don't think of them as as kind of the green energy um, epicenters of the country. But Texas produces by far the most wind power in, in the entire country. And in fact, if it was a country itself, I think it would produce the seventh most wind power in the world, something like that. You know, they also produce the most oil in the country. So it's kind of an interesting contradiction there. But um, there, these are states that have a lot of renewable energy resources like sun and wind, and they produce the most of these um, of, of this green energy in a lot of cases. And what that means for them is something very different than what it may, might mean in say California, where they wanna produce green energy for a particular reason, because it is ideologically, that's what they believe in. In these states, they might just be doing it to make money, for instance, or to create jobs or to, you know, for all manner of reasons. Um, and that was a really, I thought that was a great series for us because I really like the idea of, um, kind of, you know, playing with what you think the world is like, like you, you don't think of these places as this is where the solutions are coming from, but sometimes they are, sometimes they're coming from really unexpected places. Um, and so whenever we can do that, whenever we can highlight 
solutions that might surprise you or surprise the people who are putting them into place, then to me, that's a great story. So to go back to the question about advocacy, it sounds like what you're saying is it's really important in order to create a a really open consideration of all kinds of solutions that you not lock down in particular into partisan solutions or uh, solutions that could be construed as particularly narrow. Is that fair to yeah, say? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yes. And, and we occasionally we will get somebody who um, thinks that we're biased one way or the other or has a, a complaint or something like that. Um, sometimes that I think that's unavoidable. Um, but yeah, we really, we, we make a really concerted effort not to, um, sort of write, uh, our stories in a way that make it sound like this is what you should do. This is just something that's being done and, um, and yeah, take it for what you will. Well, I promised at the end of the show today, we'd circle back to that personal dimension, of uh, reasons to be cheerful. And I wanted to bring in uh, an audio project that your team recently put together at Reasons to be Cheerful as a year-end gift for your members. And for this project, you walked around New York City asking people to tell you something good that happened to them in 2023. And in the intro, David Byrne reflects that it sometimes took people a minute to think of something, but then he was really struck by how people clearly felt good when they talked about it. Um, to give uh, you all listening a sense of this project, I'm just going to play a short clip of it um, from right in the middle where somebody gives their example of, of what they felt good about in 2023. And then we'll turn it back to you, Will, to reflect a little bit about what struck you as you were talking to people there in New York about what they feel good about in general. So we'll go to that clip now, Andrew. I came across... Um, an insect in in the Amazon that um, basically looked exactly like a leaf. I was going through uh, a night trek through the the jungle just to to look for cool stuff. Sort of with our head torches and walking through um, some of this dense vegetation, basically having to duck under branches and um, follow the path on the way through. And and yeah, we just came to one point, uh, just looking along one of the branches there, and yeah, there it was, the little guy um, looking exactly like a leaf. It just kind of blows my mind how a small, tiny insect is able to evolve over um, hundreds and thousands of years based on what it observes um, other vegetation to look like. So you just heard from uh, one of the people on the streets of New York City that the team at Reasons to be Cheerful, the online magazine, approached uh, asking them what they felt good about or what happened that was good in 2023. Uh, so that was one excerpt, uh, one, one example of many different kinds of responses. Will, tell us more about the responses you heard, what motivated this project and, and what you take away from it. So every year at the end of the year, we try to give our members a gift. This was this year's gift. And um, yeah, to make it, we basically decided we're just going to ask people what was something good this year, a kind of awkwardly worded question with no real context and see what they come back with. We walked around New York. It was freezing cold. And a lot of people stopped to talk to us, which was sort of surprising because some New Yorkers don't like that sort of thing. Um, but a lot of people had a lot of different things to say. And it was everything from 
you know, some really moving stuff to one guy had been homeless for years and had finally just gotten back into a home and was now living with a roof over his head for the first time. Another was a doctor who had just retired from delivering babies his whole career, and he was happy that he could sleep through the night for the first time in, in 30 years. Um, one young person told us that he had had a TikTok video blow up, and he was really happy about that. So it was it ran the gamut, and it was very different from what we normally do. We don't usually report on what's making people happy or feel good, but because it's just a fun little gift for our members, we decided to do that. And, you know, we felt like it ultimately it does, it's in keeping with our sensibility of remembering that there are good things out there. And yeah, like you mentioned, when we started, people just, they'd be like, um, I don't know, I can't really think of anything. But then we'd sort of make them think about it for a while. And as they were thinking about it, you could almost see their demeanor change where they were like, oh yeah, there were some good things. And then they, they would tell us about them. And, um, yeah, it turned into a really cool little project. I was struck by um, how, as you said, there was an open-ended prompt, but uh, they were all, for the most part, personal uh, events or personal predilections, right? Somebody said, I really enjoyed food this year. Um, or uh, there were all those examples you mentioned as well, but they were not related to the sort of public realm that you're normally reporting on or public issues that you're normally reporting on. Um, and I was just struck by people's first thought was not, I am so happy that, you know, um, such and such happened that improved the state of the environment this year or such and such happened politically this year, et cetera. Um, and it's, right. it's a good reminder, as you said, to check in with that sensibility of um, what a solution is can can work on all kinds of levels in yeah. human beings. Right. Yeah, that surprised me, too. We thought we'd get a lot of like news stuff or. Um, we didn't, we got mostly people thinking about their lives and maybe what that says is that ultimately, you know, we're mostly like what, what really makes us cheerful is when things are happening that are good for the people that are in our worlds. I mean, the world is a big place and a scary place and it seems like terrible things are happening. But when you start to think about what is going right in your life, even somebody who, for instance, has been homeless for a few years can think, no, something good has happened to me this year. And so I think that to me, that's kind of great. It's great that people are a little bit focused on um, being local and being close and being, you know, community oriented rather than obsessing over what's going on in the news. Um, I, I'm, I think that that's a good thing. And the connections, they all seem to mention some kind of connection they had with, with the people around them, the world around them, the community around them, as you yes. said. Well, to wrap up, Will, what reasons to be cheerful should we be looking out for in 2024? Not in terms of a futuristic kind of prediction mode, but what you all are going to be up to there at Reasons to be Cheerful. Yeah, so um, please do visit the site. The URL is reasons to be cheerful dot world. Um, we're publishing more stories than than ever. We just keep increasing the the amount that we're publishing. Um, our team is growing. We're doing live events, and we will keep posting those on our website. Um, you should also follow us on Instagram and Facebook if you want to hear about things like that. Um, and it's going to be our fifth anniversary in August, and so we are going to have a party in New York City. And so if you're in New York and you want to come. Keep an eye out and we'll be um, making an announcement for tickets for that. And uh, and we hope you all can come out. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Will. You've been listening to Public Affairs today and I've been talking with Will Doig, executive editor of the online magazine Reasons to be Cheerful. It's been a real pleasure to talk with you, Will. Likewise. Thanks for having me. 
I would also like to thank today's engineer, Andrew Thomas, producer Jade Isiri Ramos, and news director Shali Pittman, as well as receptionist Amy Lutsky. If you've enjoyed the program today, please share the online link in our archive or wherever you find your podcasts. And thank you, listeners, for joining us today on A Public Affair here at WRT 89.9 FM Madison. Stay tuned for Madison Book Beat. On today's show, David Ahrens will be live with author Thomas Pearson about his book, An Ordinary Future, Margaret Mead, The Problem of Disability, and A Child Born Different. Disregard the mainstream media distorted. We come and listen and support it. We come and never pre recorded with information that would never.